This podcast may contain illicit language. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have three stories. The Washing Machine by Vicki Wilson, Virgin Footprints by Nathan Versaw, and The Steen Virgin Report by Matthew Summers Sparks. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcast. The Washing Machine, written by Vicki Wilson, read by Kelly Shriver. Listening time, two and a half minutes. The Washing Machine, by Vicki L. Wilson. Mama always craved what other people had. In 46, I caught her looking into a neighbor's window while the wife and the husband were having sex. I thought it was the big oak bed she was coveting. Turns out it was the husband. Mama, what you doing? I asked her, pulling on her apron. Nothing, baby, she said, shooing me away. Just looking. In 48, Mama had gotten the husband and left him already, so she moved on to other things. Mabel Bailey had just bought one of the first top-loading automatic washing machines. Mabel talked about it constantly, at coffee on Mondays, after church on Sundays, and over dinner every other Friday. Did I tell you that I can put a whole basket of shirts in there, she asked. Yes, her audience always replied. Mama, though, would never reply. It was early spring when Mama snapped. She was washing my muddy clothes on the old machine she had inherited from her first mother-in-law. Do you wade through this mud, she yelled at me. Do you roll in it? No, Mama, I said, slinking away. She stomped off upstairs, leaving the muddy clothes wrapped around the machine for three days. The morning of the fourth day, she stood at the front door in her coat, dressed to the nines, in full makeup. When Mama was dressed like that, she was a knockout. I'll be back shortly, she said to me sweetly. Stay out of the cookies. I looked out the window to watch her walk over to Mabel Bailey's house. I hung around in the front window for almost an hour, waiting to see what Mama was doing. When she didn't come out of Mabel's red front door for what seemed like days, I left my perch and went to play with my Lincoln logs. I was almost finished building my third log cabin when she returned. Hello, darling, she said to me, her voice full of sing-song sweetness and her hair not as neat as when she left. A man will be coming by later to drop off Mabel's washing machine. Let him in the door when he rings, okay? I said yes, okay, I would. Around two o'clock, Mabel's husband, Gordon, removed our old machine and put Mabel's washer in its place. Mama, I said, while we both stood admiringly in front of the new appliance. How did you get Mabel to give you the washer? Don't you worry about that, Mama said. So I didn't, even when, the next week in church, I saw Mabel pull Gordon tighter to her whenever she saw us. And after the service, when Mama caught Gordon's eye and gave him a mascara-loaded wink, Gordon turned beet red and Mabel dragged him out the church's double doors while the rest of the church ladies tittered. The End Vicki Wilson is a fiction writer, poet, and playwright whose work has appeared in journals including The Oregon Literary Review and Salvage. She lives in upstate New York. Virgin Footprints Written by Nathan Versaw Read by David Robinson. Listening time, 13 minutes, 45 seconds. Virgin Footprints by Nathan Versaw I'm standing in front of the Christmas tree in the center of the mall, 
watching the shoppers speed by. Red and green turtleneck sweaters, scarves and gloves, the clopping thud of heels on tile. The smell of salted pretzels wafting from the food court. Fake Santa is sitting on his throne in a knockoff North Pole, bouncing an obese boy on his knee. I'm hoping a flash of Christmas exuberance will carry me down to Penny's, so I can finish my shopping and leave. That's when this girl, she walks up and stands in front of me, staring at me. In a Christmas cheery voice, she says, You don't look happy to be here. To be here? I point down, confused, caught off guard by her approach. Right there. She points to the same spot. I don't know what you mean. I'm just doing some shopping. I'm trying to brush her away with my words. This is the same way you talk to that telemarketer that calls you during dinner. Don't you have any Christmas spirit this year? Well, I'm standing in front of a Christmas tree. She's wearing a red and green sweater with miniature reindeer embroidered on the sleeve. She has sharp blue eyes that instantly shock, drowning out the rest of her face. I don't think you're a very happy man, she says. Is that so? I have to wonder, then, why you insist on talking to me when I'm obviously very busy staring at this tree. Are you drunk, sir? Maybe. Maybe a little. A moment of silence. She seems to be thinking, maybe trying to figure out if being drunk is a good or a bad thing. Do you like young girls? She asks. How do you mean, like? I have a daughter, probably about your age. I don't mean, do you like young girls? I mean, do you like young girls? Like, would you like to fuck a young girl? The word fuck doesn't sound right coming from her mouth. Not from between teeth so white. Not from a girl wearing a reindeer sweater. I guess I'd fuck just about anything that would let me, and probably have at one time or another. This isn't a proposition. It's more like a fly swatter. My gut tells me that two or three of her friends are hiding in a corner, watching, waiting for their friend to get the drunken middle-aged man horny. That's when she'll spit in my face and run off laughing. So if I asked you to take me out, you wouldn't do it. Wouldn't you rather go out with one of these nice mall boys? She glances at me, knee-deep in sarcasm before looking up at the Christmas tree. A smile starts to broadcast across her face, but she instantly censors it. She is wearing a black skirt with nylon black stockings. This, with the adorning sweater, makes her look like a prostitute with Christmas spirit. I can imagine years from now, after eons of drug abuse and smoking, that her now-perfect skin will look like a leather boot that's been at the bottom of a lake too long. She'll be coughing through her yellowed teeth and begging the Salvation Army guy in front of Woolworths for a handful of his change. You're funny, she says. So will you take me out? Listen, you're just a damn kid. How old are you? Fifteen? Sixteen? Anyway, old dirty drunks don't take little blonde-haired girls home from the mall. It's called kidnapping. I look her in her baby round face and say, Besides, I have to buy my daughter a present. Sixteen. That's how old I am. How old is your daughter? Fifteen. See, that works. I can help you find her a present. Do you know if she likes Justin Timberlake? I don't really know. I was thinking I'd buy her a sweater like the one you have. I say, pointing at her sweater and smiling. God, I hate this sweater. 
My mom bought it, so I have to wear it or I'll hurt her feelings. You don't think sleeping with old drunk men will hurt your mother's feelings? Without answering, she turns away, pretending she didn't hear the question. I follow her gaze until it falls on Santa. He's now bouncing a little girl on his knee. You could probably buy her a makeup set. I bet she'd like one. They have some cool ones at Glitz. It's just down the other end of the mall, she says, grabbing my sleeve and pulling me behind her. We walk through the mall, and how this must look is like a good old dad taking his daughter Christmas shopping. In a world full of grace, this would be me taking my daughter to get the new Justin Timberlake CD. But this is a graceless world, so it isn't that at all. Instead, this is me walking drunkenly through the mall, looking for a present for my dead daughter, with a horny, confused teenager pulling on my sleeve. She drags me into Glitz, and I swear on Santa's cross, I'm the only drunken, unshaven, 40-something male in the store. It's mostly schoolgirls in low-cut, pink, and paisley outfits. Girls too young to be painting their faces 15 shades of fuchsia. A few of the girls look at me, and I feel like a dildo salesman at a young Christian scientist convention. Isn't this cute? I bet she'd like this, she says, holding up a candy-colored box with a glass top. Inside, a register of eyeliner covering a wider color spectrum than that of the biggest Crayola boxes. I humor her and nod my head, knowing my daughter would never have liked anything like that, or at least I'd like to think so. My memory of her is frozen in the pre-makeup years, long before sex would pigeonhole her into push-up bras and jeans so tight only the bulk of the zipper is left to keep a young man imagining. She talks me into the makeup kit, which I buy. I rush out without my receipt and start staggering back toward the other end of the mall, back towards the Christmas tree. The girl runs up behind me, giggling, obviously having noted my unease in the store. So I was thinking since I helped you find your daughter a gift that maybe you would buy me dinner. I'm so hungry, she says. Her mouth spreads, revealing a picket fence of enamel. She starts giggling again, but it doesn't sound like a giggle of joy. It sounds like a giggle you would take to the gallows. We walk through the food court. She pirouettes, squinting up at the menus, surveying her options. She orders a cheeseburger and fries, which I pay for and carry back to the table she's already found. I sit down and slide the tray of food across to her. She dips a fry in ketchup and shoves it in her mouth. So where's your wife at? she asks. She bites into the burger, and bits of the burger's guts squeeze out the backside and splatter on the table. I'm not married anymore. We got divorced a few years ago. Oh, I'm sorry. Do you still see your daughter much? A pickle lands in her tub of ketchup. She shoves another fry in her mouth. No, not much at all. I start picking at her fries, eating them one at a time. She stares at me as I bite into one. She smiles and looks down. I guess I should ask you your name. It's Jessica, and yours? Carl. Do you think you could give me a ride home, Carl? I was supposed to be home an hour ago. I want to say no. It would break tradition. I'm losing my focus. I'm losing my drunk. This is symbolic. It means something. It won't work with you around. You've already screwed it up plenty. But I say yes. I don't know why. She's just so damn cute and warm with her pink peppered cheeks and her silly looking sweater. Since Jessica is 16 and has her driver's license, I decide, in the spirit of safety, that it would be best if she drove. 
As we're pulling out of the mall, I'm thinking this wasn't a wise choice because we narrowly avert a Christmas tragedy as she swerves out of the path of a Honda at the last moment and says, Sorry. I need you to swing by the liquor store, okay? Sure, there's one close to my house. The liquor store is packed. I'm standing in the wine section, watching the exhausted Christmas shoppers carry bottles of rum, bottles of scotch, bottles of Merlot, back to their families, to their living daughters. I grab a bottle of cheap Chardonnay for later, and a pint of vodka for now. When I get back in the car, Jessica has changed my radio station. The DJ on the radio says it's hot 90-something or other. A pop song comes on. Some girl singing about a boy she just can't say hello to. Jessica whips out of the parking lot as I crack open the vodka and take a swig. The DJ says it's now 9.30. It's snowing. Small, downy flakes are kissing the windshield. Jessica squints at the road, an indication that she'll soon need glasses. I take another swig of vodka. My drunk's reappearing. Can I ask you a question? I ask, capping the vodka bottle. Sure. What do you want to know? Well... It's about what you said in front of the Christmas tree in the mall, about if I liked young girls or if I liked young girls. I was just wondering if you really meant that. I mean, if you really actually would have gone through with it. She looks shocked by the question and pretend focuses on the road. Well, I ask after a long silence. Yes. Yes? Yes. It's not that I'm a slut or something. I just thought you looked lonely, and I don't really get along too well with boys my age. She pauses and pulls at a piece of pink gum I never noticed was in her mouth. I was hoping to lose my virginity soon, because all my friends have already. She makes a right-hand turn. The snowflakes are thick, nearly weightless, as they glide flawlessly to the ground. Okay. I can't say I really understand, but okay. She looks at me, seeming insulted by the way I say this. I mean, you probably don't really understand a drunken man staring blankly at a Christmas tree in the mall either, right? I offer. She lets out a nervous snort. She pulls the car into a subdivision. The street is lined with trees on both sides, snows collecting on the branches and making them sag above the road like we're sliding through an arctic tunnel. I look over at a brick rambler washed out with Christmas lights. In the window, I see the silhouette of a man and a child walking through the front room in a gentle wash of orange light. We speed past and make another turn. Jessica pulls the car over. The right front tire hits the curb, pitching us forward. She puts the car in park, looks out at the falling snow, and turns to speak to me. I just live up the street a little ways. I better walk from here. My mom would probably kill me if she saw me being dropped off by an older man. Right, I say. We sit in silence, staring at each other, the streetlight flaming in her eye. Here, I say, handing her the makeup kit. I want you to have this. But what about your daughter? Don't worry. I can get her another one tomorrow, I say. My insides begin to tingle. I'm beginning to think that maybe I am the kind of guy that kidnaps a young girl from the mall and takes advantage of her. She takes the makeup kit and looks down at it, rubbing her palm across the top of it, smudging the glass. She peeks up between arched brows, something close to come hither, as she tries to manage her words. She gives up and suddenly turns and looks out the windshield. After a long moment, her mouth slightly parts. The words are trying to come out, but don't make it. 
She opens the door and steps out. I do the same and meet her in front of the car. You have a Merry Christmas, Jessica. You too, Carl. We stand in the cold, silk silence of the frozen night, avoiding eye contact. I look down the street and watch the snow swim through a blanket of darkness before bedding down on the road. When I turn back, Jessica is staring at me, her eyes brimming with loneliness and ache. You know, we can still do it, if you want to, she says, snowflakes falling on her shoulders, her cheeks mottled in a frosty cotton candy pink. I know, I say. I bend forward and kiss her on the forehead. Her head is cold in a warm way. I almost can't remove myself. Good night, I say, pulling back and stepping around her. Good night. She stands there waiting for me to get into my car. I get in and smile at her through the windshield, and then she steps up onto the curb and walks past me carrying the makeup kit. I sit inside the car, watching the snow before turning the heater up, listening as the heat thrums through the vents. I cup my hands together and breathe into them, filling the pocket with hot air, then rubbing the warmth into my hands. I put the car in drive and pull away from the curb. In my rearview mirror, I imagine my daughter carrying a makeup kit home from the mall, still angelic, still with movements of grace, putting virgin footprints in the snow with every passing step. The End Nathan Versa was born, raised, and cultivated in the Mormon Mecca of the world, Salt Lake City, Utah. He is not Mormon. His stories and poems have appeared in Big News, Outsider Inc., Thunder Sandwich, Ink Pot, and Unlikely Stories. The Steenburgen Report, written and read by Matthew Summers Sparks. Listening time, 14 minutes. The Steenburgen Report. This is my last week of work and I've been real busy. I'd like to leave on a high note. I completed the Torkelson Report and the Avanti Report and I forged forward on the Steenburgen Report, but I'm never going to finish it like this, Jack jawing on the phone with Stridex, my intern, about the mystery of the missing steering wheel. I can't discuss this now, Stridex. My name is Strider, sir. Sorry. And I'm sorry, but I have to go. I gotta get this done and I hang up the phone. I need to get his name straight. I'm a little disoriented. I've been awake for 112.199999 consecutive hours, but I still feel fresh, as if I've been awake for only 45 or so hours. Today is casual Friday, so I'm not wearing my necktie today, at least not in the popular way. Mine is wrapped around the palm of my left hand, and it looks real dashing, real dapper. And the phone rings. Striper says he's concerned about his steering wheel. He's asked me about it a few times, and I've always dodged the subject. I try not to lie. But he's right about an awful lot. His car needs a steering wheel. Without one, he can go forward or backward, but not around corners. He's right that I took the steering wheel, and he's right that it's here, propped on my desk. It says Saab. I lost the sob to Strider in a poker game about 70.3333333333 hours ago. As I dropped off the car at his apartment building, I popped off the steering wheel as a memento. I had a special time with that car, approximately 213,242.2 hours, if my math is right. 
which it probably isn't. I filled up the gas tank before dropping off the car, hoping that would distract him from the missing steering wheel, but I don't think he even noticed. I need to leave. I need some fresh air. I ask Strider about where, whether the rest of the car is what he thought it would be, or maybe even better than he'd expected. He, said something, he says something about the car's engineering, and I don't know how to respond. I can't even feel the phone resting on my ear. My brain feels like half-melted ice cream, and my legs resemble steam irons. Strider, I'm right in the middle of an important deal. I've got a square. Give me five minutes and I'll buzz you back. He says, well, my car is about to be towed and it's important to talk to you about my hangout. I pat my pockets, locating my wallet, and I'm ready to go. I pick up the steering wheel by the area where the horn used to be. I've never handled it in any way other than on its circumference, and this feels kind of funny. But after 112.22222222222 hours of no sleep, everything feels kind of funny. My eyelashes are cold. When I blink, everything goes dark. I tiptoe past my door, Strider's desk is just outside, and slide the window wide, tossing the steering wheel past the fire escape to the yard below, into something that could be a shrub, but I can't rule out that it might be a tree, a pile of trimmed branches, or maybe an upside-down kettle covered in astroturf. I misplaced my glasses 73 hours ago, then looked for them for 11.345678 hours before giving up. Besides, I located a pair of dilation glasses, these brown plastic deals that my eye doctor gave me during my last checkup. I climb onto the, back, onto the black iron fire escape, and it's the brightest sunrise in the history of the universe. So I doff my dilation glasses and work my way down the first of five flights. I reach the final level and activate the counterbalanced ladder. As the fire escape swings down, I feel off balance. With a fierce metal-on-metal -metal wail, the ladder stops well before it should, about 10.825555555 feet above the ground. I'll have to hop down. It's a long fall, but if I spread my arms and catch the wind with my suit jacket, I can make it. I maneuver myself to the tip of the ladder, ease myself over the edge, feet first then release. My arms spread and catch the wind, and the sky embraces me. Everything is gentle and at peace. My descent is cottony soft. I ease through the clouds. I have wings on my fingertips. I'm a baby buttercup in free fall, and I slam to the ground. My feet, knees, palms, elbows, then foreheads smack onto the dewy lawn, and I'm jolted awake. I stand and brush dead grass from the front of my suit, and try to remove a ketchup stain that appeared mysteriously after lunch 15.5555555 hours ago. As I stretch my legs, windmill my arms, and rub my head, everything is in fine shape. I attempt to loosen the tightly packed discs of mud on my knees, elbows, and forehead, but have no luck. As I pull my steering wheel from the shrub, my breath turns into vapor in the morning air, and I raise my jacket around my collar. Then metal slams against concrete behind me. I glance toward the sound. Striper is running like a greyhound from the front door, shouting. I recognize only a few words, sir and gimme and my steering wheel. But the meaning is lost on me. I bolt. I'm a gazelle running along the long drive, fleeing toward Connecticut Avenue. Two cars pass on their way to the parking lot. I pump my arms and hurtle onward stepping largely and confidently. 
If this isn't settled soon, I'm never going to finish the Steam Virgin report, much less get feedback on the Torkelson report and the Yvonne report. I pull a hard left onto Connecticut. I leap puddles in single bounds. I chug past a Starbucks, past Tadito's Market, not toward my watch and realize that I haven't slept in 112.375 hours. This is my last day on the job. I'm being let go, and I've got so much to do. I pull a sharp, a sharp turn into the new coffee place. I jog to the counter and order a jumbo cup. Hurry, please. I'm in a hurry, I say. And this beautiful squat woman with green tomato cheeks points to her forehead. You have a mud cake, she says. And I rub my forehead. Small pieces of dirt flake past my eyes. Better? She shrugs and then turns toward the coffee vats. I remove my jacket and flop it over my shoulder, all sophisticated. I spin on my heel and stare through the glass doors. I love nothing more than to see old Stridex run by on the sidewalk, wondering where I've gone, shrugging his shoulders, then scratching his noggin before running along out of view. Instead, Strider jogs directly to the door of this new coffee place. In the reflection, he composes himself before entering the coffee shop. When he steps inside, he points at me, then his forehead, and mouths the word, Messi. I rub my forehead again, and the counterwoman asks him if he'd like anything. Much more to me than to the counterwoman, he says, I'd like my steering wheel. I chuckle awkwardly as the woman glances at the steering wheel clutched in my hand. I tell her that he'd like a cup of coffee, too. The woman hands us small, tooth-white cups. I thank her and pay. We sit at a table the size of a frozen pizza. I set the steering wheel on my lap. I take a sip, which I can't taste. I pretend to be refreshed. This is just what I needed, I tell Strider. He dips a napkin in a water glass, then dabs at my forehead. You need some rest, sir, I shrug, and I eat my steering wheel. Strider asks me to hand him the wheel, and right then, I want this to be over, and I want to start dealing with everything I'm getting into, life without my job, mainly, and I decide to give him the steering wheel. My hand rests on the wheel, now hidden beneath my blazer on my lap. As I consider lifting it to the table, I tell him this is my last day at work, and I'll miss it terribly. Being let go is hard, I say. He expresses his sympathy, and I nod. I have something to tell you, I say. I put my hand on the center of the steering wheel, ready to hand it over. I promised Steenburgen that I'd have her project finished. I gave her my word, but I may not finish. You never know, Strider says. You might still finish it, right? Well, I do have 17.444444 hours until midnight, I say. Strider nods and again tries to remove some mud from my forehead. He's very polite, and I feel the urge to keep my steering wheel. I will. I'm going to keep it. Wait a second, I say, focusing my attention to the far side of the coffee shop. Is that Torkelson sitting with Ivanti, complaining about my performance? When Strider studies the direction I focused on, I douse my head with a cup of coffee, like a marathon runner, and then bolt for the exit. Knocking over our table in a nearby chair, I'm out the door and back on the sidewalk. And I'm a gazelle, gliding along the Connecticut Avenue sidewalk. I'm a bolt of lightning in a slipstream. I murmur, vroom, vroom, as I outrun cars. As I run past a newspaper stand, I knock it over behind me, into Strider's path and I run as hard as I can. I'm zooming, but losing energy. I'm fading.
automobiles pass. I run head down, pumping my limbs, reaching deep down, tapping an amazing rhythmic pace. Head raised, I pump my arms and achieve optimal running form. My stride is classical. I'm the model urban runner. I run like a goddamn relay runner, like Athenius Relay, the pioneering relay runner who convinced friends to join. Hey, you three pals, come on, we'll be a relay team. Simply model your stride after mine and we'll run in order. We'll be the first relay team. We'll be immortalized. It'll be relay, relay historic. My stride is inscribed on my soul. It's a gold bar, a good hedge against inflation. I'm giving up artistic endeavors since this run is my truest expression of myself. I have no idea where he came from, but there's suddenly a businessman in my trajectory. And we collide. My pumping left arm sends his box of papers flying. Pages scatter into the sky, and the fluttering pages are pierced by my steering wheel, which has escaped my grip. I stumble and then skid across the sidewalk, my cheek rubbing along tiny decorative pebbles. From between a Volvo and a Chevy, I watch the steering wheel land in Connecticut Avenue, roll from a near lane, across the double yellow line, and then into the next lane. Cars decelerate and stop as the wheel rolls across the pavement, finally bumping against the curb on the opposite side of the street. The businessman yells at me. I turn toward him. He looks familiar. He has my boss's cascading blonde hair. Is he Derek? You idiot, he says. He sounds like Derek, but I can't see clearly. I have a presentation to Porkelson in two hours. I correct him, very softly. You mean Torkelson. You're presenting my Torkelson report. He doesn't hear me. I wrapped it up earlier this week. He begins to gather papers and then stops, rubbing his temple and crunching his face in pain. I apologize and then turn toward the street as cars slow. Strider is holding his hand aloft, halting traffic, crossing one lane at a time, retrieving his wheel. I return my focus to Derek. I'm sorry, I say, and he nods. I lay my cheek back on the sidewalk. The white-hot sunlight pushes my scalp and my head eases to rest. Don't you recognize me? I ask. He shakes his head and responds just like Derek. What the hell are you talking about? What's with all of these precise numbers? Let's look at your Torkelson report. He picks a loose piece of paper from the sidewalk and begins to read. We recommend a divestation of 51.246813571%, which yielded a 41.4839999999% gain over 500 days, or 1.36986301 years. I mean, that's, that's the problem with your reports, all this pointless precision. And what takes you so long to finish something? My grandma could run laps around your productivity, and she just had a stroke. Last night, actually. God bless her. The sidewalk slowly warms to my cheek and I descend into deep sleep. A hand shakes my side. It's Stridex. Time to stand, he says. I agree and then plummet to sleep. Derek shakes my shoulders. This time, there's no question. It's him. He winks. Come on back, he says. I didn't mean that nonsense. I was 99.9999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999
The Torkelson, the Torkelson report and the Ivanti report were awesome. Let's get you back to work on the Steam Virgin report. We step across the sidewalk, bent over, gathering pages, and we move without friction. I lower my hands to the sidewalk, and pages rise to my grip and then shuffle into order. The report comes together, and everything feels so orderly and so right. Matthew Summers Sparks lives in Washington, D.C. His stories have appeared in the New York Times, Mississippi Review, and McSweeney's. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.